Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, of course, we don't achieve eternal life because of things that we do. We have eternal life as a gift because of what Christ did. But what's this reaping a harvest business? Well, we do things that please God because Christ has achieved our eternal life. And Paul is saying, you know, um, the harvest you reap is not just your eternal life. But what about things you do along the way that please God? That's the harvest that you're reaping. Because what if you're also uh, making sure your kids get to church? Making sure your grandkids have access to, uh, uh, to, 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 to catechism class and to, to also being able to get to church if their parents aren't taking them to church and, and, uh, or a neighbor that you have or somebody who is uh, a friend who is in the hospital and you suddenly realize they're not sure they're going to heaven and their minister evidently doesn't know how to explain it in a way that they can get it, but you can. Um, and what a blessing you can be. Um, and yeah, that's a harvest you're reaping for the Lord um, by not giving up and, and, and doing what you can when you can. Who knows what little tiny thing that you do, usually something you thought was inconsequential, that can change somebody's life. Some minor thing. So often the tiniest thing that we do. I know of a, of a boy in the St. Louis area and I don't know what year this would have been, back in the 40s, I suppose. Um, maybe earlier than that. No, oh, in the 40s. And he was adopted. And one day, the pastor across the street calls out to this little 10-year-old boy, Good morning, Danny. And the boy thought, My pastor knows my name? Where did that come from? And that boy grew up to be to to want to become a pastor, and ended up becoming a professor in our system, and taught me religion um, at Northwestern College. Um, and it might have all happened simply because that one minister, you know, a long time ago, had called out to him and knew his name at a moment when. It seemed like nobody in the world knew or cared who he was, and his minister did. Um, so what kinds of things are possible? Um, I, I think of the kids that, that I, I talk to around their, the time of their confirmation. And one thing that I always ask kids is at confirmation time is, um, what are you doing after, high or after college? I want to find out what their goal is for college. But I have a reason for asking that because I also uh, wonder if they considered options for colleges yet because their choice of high school may influence their choice of college. And for, you know, are, are you on a path that has a goal in mind or not? And I just want their parents to realize, oh, my 14-year-old, I start thinking about this all of a sudden. Um, and maybe the parents didn't know that the 14-year-old maybe wanted to be a teacher. And therefore, maybe in that instance, um, maybe one school might be a wiser choice than another. And I also want them to know 
that, um, for example, no child has ever been turned away from MVL, our, our Lutheran school here in New Ulm, um, on account of finances. You know, um, we've always made a way through um, the financial aid available of the school, and sometimes there's somebody who can be a benefactor, and there are other ways of, uh, of, of helping um, a family that might be struggling with their, with their money. The only people who have ever said no to MVL have done that internally from the family, never from MVL on the outside. A little bit different at college where there's just, it's a ton of money to go to college, you know. But the same, and the same thing here at St. Paul's as well. Um, all right, let's go on. Verse 10. We have, what, eight verses left, I think? We'll make it. I think we'll make it. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That word especially doesn't omit the first group. You know, everybody, do good to everybody, but don't forget to do good to the family of believers. Once in a while, we want to help each other um, and remember one another. And then from here, Paul goes into his three conclusions. So here, uh, conclusion, farewell number one. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So here we find out Paul was not writing this letter with his own hand. Not until here. Here, Paul, because um, somebody else was writing, Paul's probably pacing up and down dictating. And maybe the, maybe it's even on the dock, you know, because they didn't, they didn't have the postal service or the Pony Express. You had a friend who might be getting on a boat to go to that country. And Paul is writing a letter off to um, probably from Jerusalem. Following the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, Paul is dashing off a letter to go to Galatia and somebody else is going to carry it there for him. And they might have had to catch the boat or the wagon to get to the boat or whatever. But here, Paul, um, rather than sign it with his signature, because people didn't really have signatures in those days. That's, that's not what your handwriting was used for. It was just used for writing words. Um, if you had to write your name, it wouldn't be like Love Dad or something or Paul. That, that Your name came at the beginning of a letter, not at the end. You know, that, that's the first word of Galatians, is it not? Nope. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ or an apostle of Jesus Christ. So here he says, see what large, large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul is saying, this is my penmanship. This is proof that I'm involved in this letter, that it's not a forgery. Because that was also an accusation that some people had about Paul, is that these letters we hear are going around are not from you. And Paul is actually saying, they're not from me. This is the way I write. Because this is one of the very first letters Paul ever wrote. The only possible letter that Paul wrote before Galatians were the two letters to the Thessalonians. Otherwise, this is the, the first letter. And in fact, of the whole New Testament, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, and James would be the earliest documents. Um, unless the Gospel of Matthew were also written at about this time. But th those are the, th that's the opening salvo of the letters of the New Testament being written in the mid-40s, something like that. That's an excellent question. How does, how does it? Well, number one, this gets sent to the Galatians. The, the people in that S-shaped area 
in the middle of Asia Minor. Now, as soon as it gets to the first congregation, very likely they there at, I'll say, I'll say at, at, at Lystra or Laodicea, whichever church it was at, they would probably have copied it right then and there from the original. Let's send one to Derby, to Laodicea, to Colossae, to a, and to these other churches. So they would say, we, got, we, want, we want to send out six copies of this, but I think they would say, but we want to keep this. So I think it would be there at the destination church that the copies would have, the original copies would have been made. And then after that, they would find out in, say, Rome and Antioch and, and a few other places, and maybe down in Alexandria, Egypt. Paul wrote this letter, and there's good stuff in it. It's just like reading a, a prophet in the Old Testament. Let's, let's spread this around. And they would, then they would copy either the original again or something else. Now, we take a, a, a letter like, um, I, uh, like John's Gospel. There is a, a, a copy of John's Gospel that the, 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 the papyrus, the ink, and the style of writing correspond to the first quarter of the second century, that is around the year 125, which would be like 25 years after John wrote John. So is that a first generation copy? Probably of the Gospel of John. It was copied from the actual Gospel of John uh, by somebody. Um, and that, that it's, it's uh, what papyrus is that? It's a, is it 75 or 40? Anyway, um, it's, a, it's a very important papyrus fragment. It's actually not very large, but it's clearly from a, a, a letter that was written on both sides of the, of the page. Um, and it's a little triangular fragment, but it's very, very old. Um, that's part of the world of working in original manuscripts that we learn as pastors. Um, we have classes in it. I've taken summer school classes in it and so forth. Um, and for anybody listening, I got to speak to Bruce Metzger and other people about this, um, who probably doesn't mean anything to you, but in the world of textual criticism, he was a giant um, among those uh, folks. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I th did that answer the question? I could go on and on, but I think I better stop. So, also, we want to remember a couple things about, about Paul's letters because um, Paul's letters are mentioned in another book of the Bible because Peter talks about Paul's letters in one of Peter's letters. So, there you have an author of the Bible authenticating another author of the Bible. If, in fact, if we accept um, that the apostles were valid authors of scripture, right? Um, you've got, and who are the apostles who actually write books of the Bible? Matthew, John, Peter. So after you've got them, uh, it's also often said that Mark wrote his gospel um, based on Peter's preaching. And Mark is very similar in content to Matthew also. Um, Peter points to Paul and says, also scripture. He says, he, he says about Peter's letter, Paul's letters, the, as they are as the other scriptures are. So Peter says that Paul is, is, is as the other scriptures are. You're not left with a lot of New Testament now that 
isn't clearly written by somebody who says this is part of scripture. Um, you, in fact, all you have left at this point um, is Luke, Luke and Acts, and Luke is Paul's physician who travels with him, um, and then the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon that some people think might have been by Paul, but he didn't sign it. So I'm not sure who the author of Hebrews is. And then only leaves us with two documents, James and Jude. And James and Jude, the two who wrote those books of the New Testament, are the brothers of Jesus. So, and if, if they're included or not, it doesn't change a lot, although they, Jude is very similar to Second Peter. Um, and James has some marvelous things in it about Christian living. Um, but you basically have a, an, an intra-authenticating document in the New Testament that was accepted right away by the whole Christian church. Very few uh, uh, Christians disputed any of it until later. But right away, um, in the year 95, all of the New Testament authors are quoted by people outside of the New Testament. Um, Clement of Rome quotes every author, except for John, because I think John was still writing when Clement was writing. But Clement quotes from Paul, James, Jude, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Hebrews. So already all quoting, all, you know, all, all part of the, of the mix of what is the New Testament. All right. Uh, I just wanted to point a couple things out. So nothing in Paul's letters contradicts anything else in the Bible and oftentimes explains in a way that we needed, we needed explaining to, about some of this stuff. Like Paul is the one who goes more into detail about what is the Lord's Supper than anybody else in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Peter, as I said, this is 2 Peter 3. Peter makes a reference to the letters of Paul, that they're not just authentic, but equal to the rest of the Bible as the word of God. And every book in the Bible is not just the opinion of the writer, but is completely and entirely the word of God. So that's what we have in the, in the Holy Scriptures. All right, all right, that's, that's farewell number one. Now there's a PS, all right, so a postscript. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul comes back to the main point of the whole letter. Is circumcision necessary? And Paul has been saying all along, no, it's not. But now he says, verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they can boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Like, that, that would elevate them somehow. If, you, if they forced people to get circumcised, they would see, they'd be able to say, see, I was right. Um, and then, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul is saying, it's not circumcision, it's the cross that means everything. Everything is sub subordinate to the cross. And then he says something that's almost a non sequitur. It almost doesn't make any sense. But he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Now, wouldn't you expect him to say circumcision doesn't mean anything, uncircumcision means everything? 
mean, aren't they opposites? But he says, no, they're both meaningless. So what Paul finally says is, it doesn't make any difference if you're circumcised or not. Entire, the only thing that really counts is the new creation, which is faith. So if you were a Jew, and therefore you were circumcised, um, does that make any difference with regard to your faith? No. If you were a Gentile, and therefore were uncircumcised, does that make any difference with regard to your faith? No. Even though I've been telling you, don't let yourselves get circumcised, that's because it's not necessary for your faith. But whichever one you are, circumcised or uncircumcised, what matters is your faith and not the status of your genitals. Okay, that's what Paul's getting at, is that the, this idea of circumcision is, uh, is, is, is not the issue. Um, Mr. Uh, Kepsel at MVL has a, a great way of talking about this and this kind of argument with his theology students at MVL. Um, they get him in their last two years. Um, it's just amazing classes. But he often uh, says this, um, the one who defines the terms controls the argument, which is, is such a truth. Whether you're talking about politics or, uh, or uh, uh, vaccinations for COVID or whatever it might happen to be, the one who defines the terms controls the argument. And even if your definition is totally wrong, at that moment, if you're the one who set the definition, you're the one guiding the discussion, aren't you? Yeah, and, but, and so what Paul does here is exactly that with regard to circumcision. Paul says that's not the argument at all. The only thing we should be concerned about is the new creation that is the cross and not worry about circumcision at all. Just drop it, Paul says. All right. Now, third conclusion. I know I have number two, but there was a PS. So this is really the third conclusion. And peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. So what's the difference? Can you give me a definition for peace as opposed to mercy? Peace? Yeah. yeah. Or elevate that from getting along with your fellow man to getting along with God, yeah. Um, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, um, the peace that comes from God because of our warfare with God, because he was going to destroy us because of our sins. And now in Christ, we have peace. Um, uh, and then getting that peace, the gift of that peace, that's mercy. Um, the... Uh, the, the thing that is granted to us for which we want to say thank you. Anybody know how to say thank you in French? Mispronounce the word mercy. Merci. merci. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, merci. So um, that's, that's a delight in what we've been given. So peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. And then um, by Israel of God, Paul here means the true Israel, the true church of God which is really now Christianity. By this time, 15 years after the resurrection, Paul is saying those who have rejected Christ are no longer part of Israel. If you know about Christ and, are, and have not become a Christian, you're outside the church. 
because the church has gone from here to here. Um, and, uh, and if you've rejected Christ, you, you have not come along. You have, you have said no to God. And therefore, your God, the one you're maybe still giving offerings to at the high festivals and so forth, what God is that if you've rejected his son? Who are you worshiping? And so to remove that, God the Father permitted something now 25 years or so after this. The destruction of the temple. There are no more sacrifices going on. But did you know that today there is a movement in Israel to rebuild the temple, rebuild the Holy of Holies, rebuild the altar, and begin the sacrificial system all over again. And I'm wondering, what, what, uh, what will the nations think if in Israel they start slaughtering lambs twice a day and bulls once a week and goats you know, by the thousands every year? No, there's a, there's, a, there's a shrine that's a Muslim thing. That's, it's the Dome of the Rock. Which, by the way, the, 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 the Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. A mosque is a Muslim church, right? right? The Dome of the Rock on, this, on the place where the old temple stood is not a mosque. It's not a church. It's a, it's a shrine, but it's not a church. And what, what also, I'm sorry, it amuses me, it's an octagonal design because it's built on the design of a medieval Byzantine, that is Greek, Orthodox, Christian church. That's the design of the Dome of the Rock. It's a Byzantine, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Orthodox Greek church design. Why they used that? I, I guess it was the design they had in the area at the time. You know, you're, 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 you're in the middle of the Crusades, and that was the architecture of the area and the builders. So, And maybe the builder they forced to build it for them thought, I'll just do a little dig here and make it a, I'll make it a church. It's a shrine. What's enshrined there? The, uh, oh, what is it? The rock. It's the stone upon which Abraham did not quite sacrifice Isaac. I believe that's correct. On Mount Moriah. That's what Mount Zion is. Um, so there. Um, there might, it, it's just something to do with a meteorite there too. But anyway, it's, um, it's, it's quite trivial compared to this is also where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, and uh, no longer uh, can visitors go in and see it. You, you could still about 15 years ago, and we have um, people of our fellowship pastors who, who went and took pictures inside. They're not allowed there anymore, but they, they used to be allowed in there to take pictures of stuff. Um, so we do know what it looks like in, on the inside. But almost as significantly is that if you, if you look at that from the outside, the old golden gate, the triple gate on, on the east side that faces the Mount of Olives, which is the gate that Jesus certainly would have gone through when he's going into the temple from on Palm Sunday. Um, the, uh, the Muslims in the days of the, of the early Crusades um, followed by, and they, they, they bricked it up, and then Saladin, around 1100, 
took the bricks down. He had to use them somewhere else. Then he re-bricked it up again. And then that got taken down. And who was the guy in Luther's time? Um, famous Muslim caliph in the area, almost as famous as Saladin. Um, I'm forgetting his name. But he, he bricked it up again, and his bricks are still there. Um, why, did they, why did the Muslims keep bricking it up? Because they read the Old Testament and see the prophecies that the Messiah will come in through that gate. Now, they're a thousand years, they're, they're, they're two thousand years too late to keep the Messiah out of Jerusalem, but they reject Christ as the Messiah. So that's what they're trying to do. All right. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks, that is the stigmata of Jesus. Anybody know what stigmata is? It's this. When some nun or somebody all of a sudden has bleeding marks of the crucifixion on their hands and feet and sometimes little holes in their head that start bleeding down, um, that's, that's stigmata. Paul is not saying that he had that kind of stigmata. He's saying that he had marks, uh, permanent damage to his body from the beatings and the stonings he had received had nothing to do with the stigmata popularized and almost always proved to be fake since the 1200s, since the 13th century. Um, you still see every once in a while somebody talking about, like, and it's often a nun who will come out of a shrine and her hands will be bleeding. And they'll, people will venerate her for a while or whatever as a miraculous thing. Um, but there aren't nail prints in the hands. She may have, you know, cut herself with her own fingernails you know, contemplating the, the, the crucifixion. In fact, at night when I'm sitting on the edge of my bed and I'm praying, I'm often holding a little wooden cross that I made in, I think, vacation Bible school as a boy. That's a little wooden cross I keep. And that, uh, the, the corners of that are actually kind of sharp. And sometimes I've almost punctured my hands in prayer on that thing. But that wouldn't be stigmata. You know, that would just be inattention, you know, or whatever. And the letter ends this way, finally. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So Paul closes with uh, another prayer. This is a blessing and a benediction, really. Um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This would be fitting, a fitting way to end a church service. We often end a little bit more fully and formally than this. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but notice that Paul uses... Not only Christ's name, Jesus, but his Messiah title, Christ, and his divine title, Lord. So all of that emphasized in our Lord Jesus Christ. And may that grace be with your spirit. Um, and then including here under Adelphoi, um, quite often in Greek, that word, which means brothers, can mean both brothers and sisters. It doesn't always in the New Testament. But here's a place where the, we're reading from the new NIV here. And uh, they went ahead and, and just elaborated that, although it doesn't actually say Adelphoi Kai Adelphi, brothers and sisters. It just says Adelphoi. But you know that it, 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 it could stand easily for both. And they would have understood it to have meant both. As when we understood it that way back in the 1980s, when you would say brothers, and we knew that it meant brothers and sisters both. And then the word amen, um, what does amen mean? Uh, it shall be so, or as Luther would often put it, or this is most certainly true. 
Yeah, all of those things. Um, amen. Truly is really what it means. Um, amen, it's Hebrew. And Jesus sometimes uh, doesn't end a prayer with it, but begins it. Truly, truly, I tell you. Amen, amen, I say to you. Um, he will say that. Not with prayers, rather, but with a very important statement. So kind of like listen up. Um, or, uh, or as an uncle of mine used to say, believe you me. You know, something like that, you know. Don't think he was quite so formal that we had to have believe you me, but that's the way he did. All right. Uh, next week, we'll go to the creation story and with Genesis, at least a portion of Genesis chapter 1. Then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.